Good morning, Door Creek. It is good to be together with you. A lot of smiling faces enjoying this beautiful summer season. If you're a guest here today, my name's Mark. I'm one of the pastors, part of the teaching team, and you're catching us in the middle of a series we're calling Big Mistake, and the goal is that we'll learn the lesson. Lesson learned, so welcome. In 1992, while I was serving at College Church in Wheaton, Illinois, where I served for 23 years before Lori and I coming here, which is now 13 years ago, um, we built a new building, and it was really a beautiful place. It had great children's spaces underneath. There were some really neat fellowship spaces, and then there was this worship space with the Corinthian columns and the cherry wood platform and this really big organ and a 60-foot kind of skylight and a big transit light joining the old and new buildings together. And it was really, really cool. And we invited Dr. Packer, J.I. Packer, brilliant theologian, author of kind of this classic book called Knowing God. If you've never read it, just a classic. We invited Dr. Packer to come and speak to the congregation, kind of this building dedication ceremony and service. And I'll never forget what his sermon was about. So here's a little secret. I usually forget what I preached on the week before. Sorry. So don't feel bad because it happens to me. But I can remember. So 1992, this is like 27 years ago. I still remember it. And he said this. The sermon and sentence was, in times of success, be careful that you don't forget God. In times of success, be careful that you don't forget God. It wasn't a new word to God's people. In fact, Moses gave that very word to God's people back in Deuteronomy 8 as God's people, the Israelites, were moving into the promised land. And we read this from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God. Failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine homes and settle down, when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become what? Proud. And you will forget the Lord your God. In times of success, be careful. Be careful that we don't operate out of pride and forget God, his goodness to us, his mission for us, and his desire to use us for good in this world as we give our lives away, even as Christ has done for us. I wonder if you consider yourself successful today. It's funny how this goes. Most of us go, not really because we're comparing ourselves to someone more successful. The question is, when people look at you, do you think there's any idea in their minds that, man, they're really successful. They've, They've made it. They've arrived. Or they're really close. I mean, do you have that look of success? You know it when you see it. See this picture if this isn't the look of success. Is that you? Like on the inside, that little girl, that little guy is going, yes. Well, today we're going to look at the big mistake that King David made in his adulterous affair with Bathsheba 
that is about sex, but actually it's fundamentally more about position and power that he leveraged to serve himself instead of unleash to serve other people. It's about the misuse and even abuse of position and power. And we want to learn this lesson because David begins in the Bible as this obscure shepherd. When God says to, to, to uh, Samuel, Samuel, Saul, man, I've rejected Saul because he's rejected me, Israel's first king, and I want you to go to Jesse's house and I want you to anoint the next king. Guess what? Jesse gets all his sons to meet the prophet except for David. Like the little redhead freckle-faced kid is out with the sheep. He didn't belong at that dinner, his dad thought. He came out of nowhere and he becomes this national hero, right? Who kills Goliath and the giant killer becomes the king and he's described uniquely in all of the Bible with these words, a man after God's own heart. Yet the man who had a heart for God couldn't control the desires of his own heart. And we're gonna read about this huge mistake and the lesson that we need to learn. So grab your Bible. We're in 2 Samuel, the 11th chapter. So it's towards the beginning of your Bible. Here's your table of contents. It's after 1 Samuel and it's before 1 Kings. 1 Samuel chapter 11 Verse 1 begins the account. You there? All right, here we go. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace from the roof, he saw a, a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So what we notice first and foremost, that David gets into this big mistake, this adulterous sin by being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And the, and the writer is making it clear in verse one. So here's a, here's a tip when we're reading narrative, the stories of the Bible. Just think about it. There is so much detail that the author could give us about any story. And so they're, they're just limiting the detail. And whatever detail we have, we should likely think this, assume this, it's important. So look again at verse one. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David didn't. He sent Joab. And what happened to David? He stayed in Jerusalem. The mistake starts with David being in the wrong place. And the wrong place is not the rooftop. The wrong place was Jerusalem when he should have been leading God's 
army, the Israelites, into battle. In fact, if you look at chapter 10, the chapter before, David is there with his troop. When you look at chapter 12, he again is with his troop. This was normal, normative behavior for the king. He's to lead his troops into battle. But he stayed at home and sent Joab. And we note that. Now Bathsheba is not depicted in any way as having done anything wrong. So if you get to this idea, well, you know, that was kind of a seductive move and she was kind of looking for action there, bathing there. What was she doing? The text tells us what she was doing. So this is not an argument for silence. Did you see the parenthetical statement? She had her period. According to Leviticus 19, verse 15, she was observing the Levitical law that said when this happens in a woman's life that she used to be bathing herself for purification. That's what she was doing. And she had no recourse in the matter. You think about the king's supreme word. It's not like she could say, guys, bad day. Why don't you tell the king to come back tomorrow? That's not going to happen. She had no recourse. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verse 4 says this. Since the king's word is supreme, who can say to him, what are you doing? It is clear in this story that there is nobody in his close circle, nobody in his cabinet that was given the permission to say, king, what are you doing? Why would you bring this kind of disgrace on your reign. Why would you bring God's judgment on your head? No, they all hit the mute button. They didn't have permission from the king. They didn't have the guts to protect the king, let alone Bathsheba, who knows nothing about what's to happen. There's no recourse. She is not culpable. She is a godly woman observing God's word. So she's violated, sent home, seemingly forgotten until she sends word back to the king, I'm pregnant. And this is where things go from bad to worse when David tries to cover his sin. How old were you when you realized, oh, covering up sin and mistakes usually has that trajectory. I mean, I was like in fifth grade. And everything to do with my love for golf in fifth grade. I got this like great deal at a garage sale, you guys. Five bucks for a whole set of clubs and a bag. Are you kidding me? So I'm taking up the game of golf and I got this new bedroom in the, ba- in the basement. So mom and my three sisters, two floors up. I mean, I got this place to myself and that was like awesome. And so I had my clubs down in my room. I had my putter out and I had these two little putter cups that I got. I'm working on my putting game. And then I started working on my swing and my irons. And I didn't know that you could do this, but you can put a divot in your carpet. But it was just small enough that I could cover it with one of my putter cups. So it was all good. But so you see things go from bad to worse. And so I kept swinging in the basement, not figuring out that you could probably do that again. And I did do that again. But there wasn't a problem because I had two putter cups. So I had one covering that divot and I had this one covering this divot. And everything was fine until my mom came down to my room with her vacuum cleaner and discovered the divots. And I was in a world of hurt. And I can still hear her saying in her thick Swiss German accent, Mock, you get those sticks out of the house. (laughs) Now we're laughing about that one. But there's no laughing matter when premeditated adultery leads to premeditated murder. Read verse 6 with me. So David 
sent this word to Joab. He's the general. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. That's a Hebrew euphemism for make love to your wife. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But, listen to this, verse 9, Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told, Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come home from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among the master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. Imagine, this is what he carried. In it he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. In other words, other soldiers died. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. So premeditated adultery leads to premeditated murder. And it's not just the end of innocent Uriah's life, but other soldiers who died in this cover-up. The cover-up plan was simple. I just got to get Uriah back home. He sleeps with his wife, and nobody will know, especially Uriah. Plan B, oh my word, he didn't go home. I got to get him good and drunk. So he'll go home, make love to his wife. Turns out, Uriah the Hittite, check this out, is a better man drunk than Israel's king was, sober. He doesn't go. That's plan B. So it goes from bad to worse, guys. Plan C is send my faithful servant to the battle line with his own death warrant. And it worked. Verses 18 through 25, Joab sends a messenger back, makes it clear they suffered losses. And just to kind of ease the report, he says to the messenger, and make sure after you give King David the bad news that you tell, oh, and by the way, Uriah the Hittite, one of his like Navy Team Six guys, he's dead. Tell him that. A weak moment led to a life of unfolding tragedy for David and his people. And, and you know, I, I could say to a student here today listening, a weak moment, and we're talking about in this whole area of sexuality, can lead to a lifetime 
of tragedy and regret. But let me just say, it's not just for teenagers. It's for 20-somethings and 30-somethings and 40-somethings and 50-somethings and 60-somethings and 70-somethings. We got this letter from our great friend back in Wheaton, Dr. Richard Geezer, who's just this amazing man who's been engaged in God's work around the world as an ophthalmologist, doing cornea transplants all around Africa, the Middle East. He's been all over. And he said in his letter this year, you know, I'm not going to be able to travel. I forget where he's at, close to 80. But he said something like, but, you know, pray for me because, you know, you're never... You're never too old to do something stupid. An unguarded moment, a moment of weakness, led to an unfolding tragedy. So the Bible doesn't sugarcoat the sin. Look at verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. I love that in chapters 11 and 12, including Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, the genealogy of Christ, the word Bathsheba is most often replaced with Uriah's wife. The, the writer wants us to understand, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, her name isn't just Bathsheba. We want to understand who she was and who she was. She was Uriah's wife that David took as his own, misusing his power and position and influence for his own selfishness and self-indulgence. But it gets worse in terms of just being clear about what's going on here. After the time of mourning was over, verse 27, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Literally, it was evil in the sight of the Lord. So tell me, how does the man after God's own heart fall from such a height? How does the man after God's own heart, who has been faithfully serving God, and if you don't know the story of David, he's anointed many years, maybe up to 15 years as king before he actually becomes the king. And during those 15 years, he's chased by this lunatic Saul, the king who's trying to take his life. And he has opportunities to actually end Saul's life. And he's like faithful to the end. He goes through all this stuff. And he's faithful, 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 faithful. How in the world did this happen to the man after God's own heart? Well, one of the things we note is it didn't just happen that night. So the biblical text is clear that he had many wives. Something the kings weren't supposed to do. Something that goes against God's clear gold standard for marriage. What's God's gold standard for marriage? The, the God who invented, designed it to bless us and bless society? Here it is, Genesis 2.24. A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, singular, not to his wives, plural. And the two, not the eight, shall become one flesh, one man, one woman, an exclusive, permanent relationship, a covenant marriage. That's 
the position of receiving God's blessing. That's the position to issuing out God's blessing to your family and the world he's called us to serve. Well, we're given some clues in chapter 12. Look at verse one, how he got here. The Lord sent Nathan the prophet to David. When he came to him, he, Nathan, said to him, he tells him a story. David thinks it's a story that's really going on in his kingdom. There are two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The story, to get his attention, is all about position and power. There's a rich man who's got everything and a poor man who's got nothing but this little lamb. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and grew it up with him, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, I imagine he might have had a finger out. You're the man, David. You're the man. This is what the Lord of God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of crazy King Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had, not, if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord? By doing what is evil in his sight, you struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took the, his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm gonna bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did in secret, but I'll do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die, but because you are doing, because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord. The son born to you will die. So I want us to know three th note three things from this story that we need to be careful of. Because these are the things that he forgot under the category of forgetting God. The first thing is he lost track of God's mission. That's the whole that's the whole argument in chapter 11, verse 1. He sends Joab when it was spring and the time for kings to engage in the battle. He remained in Israel. So he lost track of God's mission, assuming his position in power gave him a pass. He forgot he was a, a king under authority. He forgot that, like, you can't say, well, you know what, I've been doing this so long, and he could have. Man, I fought a lot of battles. Man, he had. It's time for somebody else. I'm tired. I like deserve a break. He disengaged in the mission of God. He lost track of God's mission. 
man, you guys, God's mission is, is this universal, eternal mission that has us as an object of it, that his mission of sending Christ to redeem and renew and reconcile all things has us in view, but not just as a recipient of God's grace, but as a distributor of that grace. And like, it's this blessed thing to be engaged in the work of God. It's a protective thing. It's a place of blessing that we receive and we can give. And he's just, he's lost his connection with that. He's lost track with that. And so while his men are on the front lines, he's AWOL, absent without leave, lounging in the comforts of the palace. The one who's called to serve God's people preferred to have God's people serve him. That's the first lesson to learn is that being engaged in the mission of God is a safe place. It's a beautiful place and it's a place of blessing for us and for others. There's a second thing to note. He lost track of God's goodness, his grace in his life. In effect, he snubs God's grace. So how does the prophet start out? He says, hey, God wants to remind you that remember you were just this little punky shepherd boy. You were a nothing, but I made you king. You you remember that when you were the the most wanted man in all of Israel for that decade plus, I preserved your life from the crazy lunatic King Saul who wanted to just crush you like a fly. And he could have, except I protected you. I gave you everything. I gave you the kingdom. I even gave you one of Saul's daughters to be your wife. And if that wasn't enough, if that was too little, you wanted more, I'd have given you more. Wow. Man, he lost track of God's goodness in his life. And he actually believed the lie that Adam and Eve believed, that God wasn't good. That that forbidden fruit, that that forbidden woman that he found out was a married woman. That that he thought, you know, I I deserve that. I I want that. I'm going to take that. He lost track of God's goodness. There's a third thing we see in the text. He lost track of God's word. Even worse, he stopped believing that God's word is good. Now, I want you to see the syllogism on this next slide. Here's how it goes. Well, yeah, yeah, let me do this slide. Okay, when the goodness of God is lost on a person, then the goodness of God's word loses its impact, its power on the person. So, God's word through the prophet Nathan was clear. You despise my word because you despised me. It's good for us to connect. Our our, our love for God and our love for God's word are are intertwined in God's way of thinking because God's word is an extension of God's character. It's an extension of God's will for us to flourish. And when we doubt that God is good, which is how the whole beautiful, very good beginning flips on its head and becomes a very sad story. More on that next week. 
when we doubt God's goodness, of course the next step is gonna be we doubt that his word is good. And so we'll, you, we'll like, we won't use that language. We'll just say, well, I don't believe that. Sure, well, I think that was just like something for people back then. Oh, I think the context of that was blah, 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 blah. Oh, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of people have all these kinds of ideas about the Bible. Anyway, it's just a bunch of human authors. And so we just throw it out. And we put ourselves in harm's way. The word of God was clear for how a king was to behave. The law anticipated how a king was to behave. So in Deuteronomy 17, we read three things. He was not to take many wives because the, the law anticipated position and power. It would be easy for the king of Israel to do like all the other kings. He's not to take many wives because there is a gold standard. It's to be a one-woman man. There's a second thing he's supposed to do. He's supposed to follow carefully all the words of this law. And to make it easier for the king, he was supposed to, with his own hand, write the whole law down, read it regularly that he might follow it. He doesn't follow the word of God. In the, in the, in the law that he's writing, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. At the heart of Exodus is the law summarized by the Ten Commandments. The 613 plus laws summarized by the Ten Commandments, which are summarized by the Great Commandment. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Commandments one through four. And then love your neighbor as yourself, starting with mom and dad. And then the, the other ones like no murder, no adultery, no lying, no stealing, no coveting your neighbor's wife among the examples of not coveting. God's word was clear and he just ran right through it, giving in to his own selfish heart. So he rejects God's rule in his life he doubted his goodness, and in effect said, sex with Bathsheba is better than life with you. He gave in to his selfish desires. Now, here's what should have happened on the rooftop. When he saw the beautiful woman, he didn't do anything wrong right there. So he didn't look for like a half an hour. Seeing a beautiful woman, seeing a handsome man, there's nothing wrong there. What he should have done right then was he should have pulled a Joseph. He knew the Joseph story. He wrote it out in his own hands. He should have booked it and run right back into the palace. And he should have gone to his armoire where his sword was and his sling was. And he should have got himself ready for battle. And he should have gotten his butt back onto the battlefield. That's what he should have done. But he didn't do that. Who is this woman? Bring her here. And the rest is a sad story. He wrote, at your right hand, God, are pleasures forever. Psalm 16. And he traded the forever pleasures of God for a night of self-indulgence. Eternal pleasures for like the, the equivalent of a stick of gum that lasts what? Short time. Now, I want you to note the progression of what goes on and see the parallel of what's going on in Genesis 3 that we're going to look at next week. So he saw, and what he saw, how was she described? As a what woman? 
beautiful woman. When Eve saw the fruit, it was the delight to her eyes and said, man, that looks so good. And like the serpent's promising me, and like, it is good. Not just like beautiful to behold, and it's probably more than just good to taste. It's going to make me like God. So he saw, and then he inquired. I'll talk about the dotted line in a minute. The third thing is, he sent for her literally like he took her. She has no recourse in the matter. He slept with her, and he sends her home, and then he kills her husband to cover it all up. Why is there a dotted line? Because any man in Jerusalem on his rooftop could do one and two. But it took a king or a man of position and power to do three, four, and five. That's why when God wants to get David's attention, he shares the story of the rich man and the poor man. Is this story about sex and sexual temptation? Yeah, but fundamentally, this is about position and influence and power and how we use it to either serve God and others or turn it on its head to serve ourselves. And all you need to do is just chase through the annals of history. All you need to do is chase across this globe and see the disasters that are happening at the scale of nations over self-indulgent leaders and then get it all the way down to families and marriages and our workplaces, our communities. But there's grace. There's grace. For anyone who's a boss here, who's a teacher here, because you've got influence. Mom, dad, you've got position. <laughs> it doesn't feel like i got any power. You do. You're a coach. You own a business. You're a leader in the church. You're an elected official. We've got, we got influence. Students, you, you have influence on your campus. There is grace when God sent his word through the prophet. He could have let him rot in his guilt. This is how David describes that period when he covered up his sin. This is Psalm 32. When I kept silent about a sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy. He's under God's conviction, heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. His whole physical body, he felt like it was just crushed. He's under the weight of God's convicting power, the Holy Spirit in his life. And he's wasting away like he's in this big time funk and depression because he kept silent with his sin. There was grace that God sent and moved towards him, the prophet, his word. There was grace that God would forgive him. But do not mistake this, that the removal of our guilt through honest confession before God does not mean the removal of the consequences. And the consequences were huge. The sword will not depart. You will actually have your own flesh and blood kill each other. That happened. There will be great perversion sexually in your house. Tamar raped his daughter. 
Absalom leads a coup and sleeps with all of his wives and concubines in broad daylight on the roof of the palace. And this child, though you don't die, this child's gonna die because what you did was evil in the sight of the Lord. So there's four questions as we bring this home. Number one, am I engaged in God's mission? Not, are you at the game? (laughs) Guys, we're at the game. We're here. Don't confuse being here with being engaged in God's mission. With all of our heart, with our prayers, with all the things that God has gifted to us, our time, our talents, our treasure, the relationships, our work, our relationships in community, at work, in school, in our families? Am I engaged in the mission of God, which is all about seeing more people become devoted followers of Christ? Am I engaged in the mission? Or am I engaged in just doing life for me? It's about me. Second question, am I using my position and power and influence to serve or to be served? Are my relationships transactional? I use people for what the benefit I receive or are they incarnational like Christ? I actually give my life away. So when I come into a meeting, is my first thought, well, who are these people and how can I serve them? Like, what do they need? Or is, is my first thought is like, who are these people? <laughs> Man, how can they make my life better? It's a big difference. There's a third question. Is there any chance I'm on that slippery, crooked path of adultery. You know, you don't need to be a king to want a harem. And past faithfulness is no guarantee of future devotion. It's all about finishing. Let me give you the anatomy affair, which does not describe what happened in David's life because of his power and position. He just took a beeline to, I want that. But let me give you the well-worn path so you can just find out, hey, I think I'm actually on that path. Here's how it goes. Proverbs 5 and 7, two chapters that really start to unpack in this poetic language the uh, crooked path of adultery. But here's how it goes as I see it. There's a level of frustration, discontent, or complacency in your own marriage that leads you to a point of vulnerability that's often denied or unrecognized. So frustration, discontent, complacency in the marriage. You start to notice someone at work, close friends, someone online. You begin to wonder, imagine, maybe even believe that your life would be so much better, so much happier with that person. Or maybe it's a lot more innocent how you got on the path. You began to open up to a person, not your spouse, about your life, the ups and downs, the hurts, the frustrations. You begin to open up about your marriage. You begin to bond emotionally with the other person and they're giving you a listening ear and they're sensitive and, and understanding and sympathetic. And before you know it, man, that's all you think about is that guy. So all you think about is that woman. And there's this emotional connection and before you know it, it's acted out in real space and time in someone's bedroom. The relationship is cloaked in deceit, but let me say the two in that affair are just as deceived as their spouses. You think, man, this is the realest kind of love I've ever had. Guys, it's a complete fantasy. There's nothing real about this relationship. 
It's a fantasy that you're creating in the midst of real life. And to bear that out, the statistics say that people who marry after having an affair, the divorce rate is 75%. That's astronomical. But we believe the lie. We deserve better. Nothing's going to change in my marriage. We decide to quit feeling, for ourse- feeling sorry for ourselves. And we decide, you know what? God wants me to be happy. And I am so miserable in this relationship. And so we go pursue happiness, forgetting that in God's eye, happiness is never disconnected from holiness. And we find our greatest happiness and joy in life by walking in obedience with Christ. And so we take the shortcut. And the enemy and his minions are cheering us on as we plunge headlong to our destruction. And as the writer to Proverbs 5 says, at the end of our life, there's just groaning and moaning, all the regret. Are you on the crooked path of adultery? And don't ever for a minute believe that it couldn't happen to you. I remember there's a pastor, he wrote this book, Magnificent Marriage, and he was preaching one week on uh, 1 Peter where it talks about the enemies like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And the gathered group of interns and staff asked this prominent pastor, author of this great book, The Magnificent Marriage, if God could tempt you and, and if Satan could get after you, where's, where are you weak? He goes, man, I don't know. Then he said this, but I can tell you where he couldn't get me. Couldn't get me in my marriage. That's exactly where he went down. Look, being committed to faithfulness in marriage is not the same thing as understanding that any of us guys, at any decade in the marriage, as Dr. Geezer said, could do something stupid, even worse. So the last question, am I actually believing the lie that covering up my sexual sin is actually far better than confessing it? Proverbs 28, 13 says this, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. You will not prosper. Things will go from bad to worse when you aren't honest before God and others. The stakes are going to be high. There is no doubt about that. You are right. What you're underestimating is the higher stakes of actually not coming clean. So when David came to that point of reckoning, here's what he said in his prayer. In fact, the the beginning of Psalm 51 says, this is a Psalm of David that he wrote after Nathan the prophet came and confronted him about his sin of adultery with Bathsheba. That's Psalm 51. This is exactly his prayer. Have mercy on me, O God. So, man, if this is us right now for any sin, but especially what we're talking about, have mercy on me, O God. If I've committed adultery, have mercy on my God, oh God. If I, I have used my position and influence for my own selfish gain, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. 
For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And so God through his word may be saying to you, you're the man, you're the woman. Come clean. And here's what we're trusting in. Not in our ability to turn a new page and be more faithful and pure in our lives. What we're trusting in is in Christ. Now get this parallel. Who was on the palace roof of heaven and he looked over that which was far from beautiful, a world that was twisted and made ugly by our own selfishness and our sin. And what he did is he jumped off into it engaging in the battle, carrying God's mission like Uriah, except he knew what the mission was. And he agreed to the mission that he was going to plunge into that and he was going to die for people who didn't give a rip about him. That's our hope. In the kindness and the grace and mercy of our God who left the comforts of heaven to plunge through the galaxies, to be right here with us, to be tempted in every way which we are, yet without sin. He's the one we trust in. And he's the one who fills us with his spirit so that we are positioned to find our life in actually giving it away to other people and serving. And man, when we get to that place, that is such a life-giving thing to us and to others. So in times of success, with all the influence that we may have with that, let's be careful not to forget God, his mission, his grace in our life, his good word. Let's pray. So Father, I pray for the marriages of this church, that they would build high fences around their marriage. As your word says, that they would drink water from their own cistern, guarding the exclusivity of their marriage emotionally, physically. I pray that you would give great joy and delight to the marriages of this church so that we are intoxicated with our spouse's love. That we would never forget that all of our actions are in full view of God. And that but by the grace of God, we could do something stupid and far more than stupid like David. And so, Lord, have mercy on us. Purify our hearts. Give us willing spirits. Give us courage to confess and not believe this lie that it's better to keep it covered and help us to use the places of influence that you've given us at home, at work, at school, in the community to serve people, that people would better understand who you are, the great God who sent Jesus, the servant king, and that they might find their lives complete in you. That's our desire. We pray this in Christ's name. God's people said, amen.